streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the virtual 21st running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutrunCancer.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the WFIU-WTIU Newsroom. I'll be co-hosting today with Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief. We're recording the show remotely, and we have been since March to avoid the risk of spreading infection. Today, we're talking about coming updates to the NCAA's name, image, and likeness rules. And we have three guests with us who are joining us today. Galen Clavio is director of the National Sports Journalism Center, and he's a member of IU Athletics Name, Image, and Likeness Task Force. Jeremy Gray is senior associate athletic director for strategic communications and the director of the Cuban Center, and he's also a member of the task force. He's actually the co-chair of the task force. And Kenneth Dow-Schmidt is a Willard and Margaret Carr Professor of Labor and Employment Law at the Maurer School of Law here in Bloomington. You can join us today with your questions by sending them to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So this is a great topic, and I want to get into it here in a minute. But first, I want to ask Jeremy Gray from the Athletic Department about uh, the news of the week, which is the return of Big Ten football coming up at the end of October. Um, what really led to the Big Ten being able to to plan on a football season, Jeremy? Well, first, thanks so much for, uh, for having me. And um, it's an exciting week for the conference as football will be returning in late October. Um, you know, to your question, I think um, one of the things that is great about the Big Ten is a, a spirit of collaboration and very quickly – uh, maybe before any other conference, it was determined, you know, even prior to the fall postponement, that we would play a conference-only schedule. And a major reason for that is that there were daily calls uh, with the commissioner and the athletic directors um, as a matter of routine conversations with the commissioner and the university presidents, the chief medical officers, and, you know, doctors associated with each of the 14 institutions regular communication with one another. Uh, one, monitoring uh, the situation, understanding what other institutions were doing, and uh, you know, coalescing around a, uh, a series of guidelines and protocols that all schools would agree to, uh, to, to follow. So I think that was a major component of this, is that um, while there were some you know, passionate agreements and disagreements amongst the institutions along the way, uh, there was regular communication and they weren't 14 separate satellites floating out into space, separate from one another, not communicating with one another. So I, th I think there's, there's, there's that. Uh, but then the availability of antigen tests, uh, the capacity of each institution to contact trace and uh, to, to uh, test their, their, their athletes and staff members with, with regularity, along with the... Uh, the um, you know the the comfort level of the institutions with how the testing was going and how their teams were uh, were responding all of that together um, you know uh, worked its way into uh, the, the conference making the, the decision to to ramp up football and to to be ready to play in late October. So when are we going to have a schedule? Uh, you know that's you know that's one of those things that sometimes you will find out before the people who actually work here. Uh, one thing that has not been so positive is that there have been some leaks from time to time. They're, they're working on that right now. My guess, uh, it, full disclosure, is that it could come as early as this weekend, if not early next week, as they're uh, you know working those things out. It's going to be a compressed schedule. It's going to be uh, it's going to be fewer games, uh, but we're 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 excited to, to to see where it lands. And you know, as someone who obviously is paid to say this, so take it with several grains of salt. Um, a team coming off an eight and four regular season last year, um, a couple of minutes away from winning a January bowl game for the first time in a generation. 
with several important returning players back. Um, I'm really excited about the football season and the product on the field for IU. So can't wait to see him play. All right. Before we leave the topic, Galen, I know that you've been following this very closely um, in your role at IU. So I just want to give you an opportunity to comment on what you see going forward. Oh, I mean, it's it's a fascinating set of circumstances, obviously. And I think I'm I'm happy that the Big Ten and its member institutions feel confident enough in their ability to to test and react to things that they can have a season. I, I think the schools acted out of an abundance of caution in August, but it does appear like things have shifted at least a bit. And so it's tough when you're watching ACC teams and Big 12 teams playing games and you're not. And I think that certainly that'll help some public perception aspects. And I feel certainly good for not just the athletes playing in the games, but, you know, as a as the director of the sports media program here, I feel good for my students because uh, we were kind of sitting around wondering what we were going to be covering this fall. So uh, it's, I think, a good thing all the way around. And I just hope that the health situation allows things to, to go through for the entire season. I think it might be a little bit of a rocky road as far as that's concerned, but we'll, uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed. I do know there are probably some people out there saying, well, you know, it's all about the money. And I know I heard uh, Scott Dolson, the athletic director, talk to the Rotary Club last week. And he said, you know, he he didn't want everybody to think he was that naive to, to say that it wasn't partially about money, but that money was uh, not the leading factor involved. So, Jeremy, could you just react to that? I, I Correct. I mean, regardless of how this plays out, there are going to be substantial and profound financial difficulties facing all of the athletic departments in the Big Ten. Um, while, while this certainly helps, it doesn't solve them. And I think that's an important thing to note. Uh, so this this is not primarily motivated, uh, you know, by by the financial impact of playing football. Um, I can tell you it it has. First of all, it, it's part of our mission as an um, as an athletic department is to actually play games. So it's it is part of what we are here for. Um, two, uh, there are some exceptions, and th- those exceptions need to be respected and understood and uh, wholly supported. But for the most part. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the students want to play. Uh, so that's a huge component of it too. It's part of uh, the experience that that we promised uh, when they were recruited as prospective student athletes. And there's also um, a lot of talk that, well, well, why football and not everything else? Well, the NCAA postponed the fall championship season to the spring. Um, we'll see how it plays out, but um, a lot of these other sports are going to start at a later start time football is just it's unique obviously it's unique because of the size of the teams and it's outsized financial impact uh but it's the way you have to ramp up for a football season is unique to every other sport so getting that up and running and and, and ready to go i it was the alligator closest to the boat that we had to take care of well and just to to say again what what uh the athletic director scott dolson said is and you've said it too, but the the um, rapid testing and some issues in the the heart, um, some research on on the heart and some testing and screening in that area were two of the things that Scott said would help keep the athletes a lot safer, and that gave them some confidence. So I just wanted to mention that in case there were people out there, you know, screaming at their radio that it was about the money. So I want to move to Ken Schmidt now. Um, Ken Schmidt is the Willard and Margaret Carr Professor of Labor and Employment Law at the Maurer School of Law, and I know that you know, you've you've been involved in in uh, I mean you've watched this issue of paying paying players and you know whether college athletes should be paid and things of that nature. So uh, if you could just sort of frame this discussion for us about name, image, and likeness, I, I would appreciate that. Sure, sure. I'd, I'd be glad to, uh, Bob. Um, I should, full disclosure, I actually am, I just happen to be a faculty member on the athletics committee too. So I, I get to see how our athletics department works and and uh, uh, shout out to them that that uh, I think they take uh, student student uh, well-being and achievement uh, more, and make it more important than winning. Winning is, is important and, and our students come here to win, but, but they, uh, 
they do want to take care of these young men and women and, and give them a good experience while they're here. Um, this whole, uh, the, the current uh, debate over this really began with the uh, O'Bannon case. And Ed O'Bannon uh, uh, was, uh, you, you hear this story enough, and it's, it's apocryphal here now with what's happening with the name, image, and likeness. But evidently, he was playing a video game while he, he was a famous uh, college basketball player, I believe for UCLA, but, but I'm not sure. Uh, since he didn't play for Indiana, but he was playing a video game and he saw his own image there. And uh, uh, the, he, he was struck by the fact that he was not making any money off of the use of his image, but his college and I believe the NCAA were all were making money off the use of his image. So they sued under the, uh, they sued the NCAA uh, under the antitrust laws, basically arguing that uh, the NCAA and setting up its, its rules and regulation on the conduct of play had restricted competition in, in payments for the use of your image and, and compensation to the to the players um, uh, without and it wasn't a reasonable restriction on trade that it was that it violated the antitrust laws and uh, about the same time also the Northwestern uh, football players organized and and uh, uh, submitted for an election under the National Labor Relations Act because they're a private school and wanted to be treated as employees. And in the course of this litigation, the litigation, you know, spun out over over a period of time, but tr kind of tracking both those those possible ways in which uh, players might be compensated, either for the use of their image or as employees. Uh, O'Bannon, uh, in some respects, won his case, and the district court said that the NCAA's restrictions on payment for the use of the image were unreasonable and had to be changed. And we've had other litigation since then, the Jenkins case. And the Northwestern football players eventually lost their case where the board said, basically, we aren't going to take jurisdiction. They didn't say that they weren't employees. And actually, there's a pretty good argument under the National Labor Relations Act that they are employees. But, but they basically said, we aren't going to take jurisdiction of this because they can't effectively collectively bargain in a, in a, uh, in a, a conference where they're the only private school. Um, but so we've moved from, um, um, if, if in fact, players are going to be compensated in some ways uh, for uh, um, their, their image or for their, their services to the university. We've moved from a model of, we seem to have rejected the employee model, at least in the short run. And we've gone to this, this uh, model of, well, geez, if, if the school and the NCAA can benefit from the, the selling their image, why can't they benefit from it? And uh, a number of states have, the interesting thing was when people were talking about treating athletes as employees, a number of states started talking about passing laws to make sure they weren't employees. But now with the use of their image, a number of states have talked about passing laws to allow them to be used for their image. And in fact, I think California, um, uh, New Jersey, most recently, Colorado and Florida, and Florida's law becomes effective this next summer, They've all passed laws saying that uh, the student athletes can be paid for the use of their image or can receive compensation for the use of their image. And this really puts pressure on the NCAA to come up with a federal solution because they don't want this to happen just willy nilly. Some states, uh, students get uh, compensated and, and, and some states they don't get paid for the use of their image. And, and uh, so the NCAA has decided, okay, we're gonna have to have a standard rule on this. We're gonna try to come up with a general rule they are going to lobby Congress to try to get this rule or at least some, some regulation uh, in place at the federal level so that it preempts independent state, uh, state regulation. Uh, and that's kind of the long and short of, of how we got to where we are. And, that, and that's what they're in the process of doing right now is, is developing, the NCAA is in the process of developing its rules. And then they will pro pro undoubtedly propose some kind of legislation to Congress too. I can imagine all sorts of... Um details, the devil's in the details will be all sorts of ways that people um, will maybe try to get around this and it's just going to be complicated. So let me turn back to Jeremy Gray and, and Galen Clavio and, and Jeremy as the, the coach, you are the co-chair, right? Of this uh, committee. Yeah. That's what I put in the release anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what, you know, the university seems to be being very proactive for its student athletes with, with setting up this task force. So what do you hope to accomplish? What's the goal of the task force? Well, you've already hit on some of it already in which you don't know what you don't know. A lot of unanswered questions, the devil's in the details. I've heard all of those phrases so far. 
And that's a big part of it. Uh, we know that there's not a, there's a lot that we don't know yet, that it's going to morph and change and details are going to be coming later. But it's really important that we do know immediately and have a structure in place and people assigned um, to the task of understanding the rules, understanding the space, and making sure that we're following the rules, making sure that we're educating our athletes, and making sure that we are positioned to be successful uh, with the new lay of the land. It would be like um, in the early ages of collegiate athletics, uh, hearing that the NCAA was going to be creating rules that everybody would have to follow and then not creating a compliance department to follow the rules. So that is a, that is a big part of this task force. And task force is maybe not a great name because task force sometimes leads one to believe that it's something that's going to meet for three, four months to, to work on a specific problem, then go away after the problem's resolved. This is going to be an op- ongoing operating unit within the, the athletic department. And it's, it's important that we understand those issues. So that's a big part of it. Another part of it is uh, educating the athletes uh, so that, one, they know the rules, but then they also know the opportunities. And then uh, three, um, and this is um, w- what's especially interesting to our, to our coaches, is understanding how, um, how we are going to be able to use it to recruit prospective student athletes. How do we portray uh, Indiana as an institution, um, you know, to prospective student athletes to let them know about their opportunities if they come to school here. So handling kind of those three buckets are, are, are what the task force has been charged with. So just to follow up, I know, uh, you know, we're, we're talking sort of the 60,000 foot view, but on the ground, one, one of the things I read this morning has to do with, you know, the NCA has a uh, uh, list of potential changes for student athlete activities including advertising and promotion. And they're talking about things like, you know, if an, if an, an IU or any other tennis player would um, want to give lessons, the tennis player could be paid for the lessons. Or if somebody wanted to um, be paid to sell their autograph, they might be able to be paid to sell their autograph for a college student. So, you know, these are some of the things that could happen, you know, on the ground that I, I'm sure those are the kinds of rules that you're going to want to look at. And then the other one, and Galen, this is particularly uh, relevant to you, social media content creation and distribution. And I know, you know, from your experience at the media, media school, I think you'll be probably pretty involved in that. I will see. Yes. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, my background and my research area is specifically the intersection of social media and sports. And I think that what's fascinating about, what that particular paradigm presents in terms of uh, the way that communication operates is that you know, 25, 30 years ago in the mass media era, you had a very small number of media channels. You had your newspapers, you had radio stations, you had television, and those were controlled by uh, you know, traditional media entities. And now you look at the growth of you know, Instagram influencers. You look at the, the growth of of, of Twitter feeds and the way that people are accessing those for their day-to-day information. And it presents just a different, it's a different reality. And you can look across the world of social media and some of the most popular people on the planet on social media are athletes. Uh, you know, the people like Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and, uh, you know, the stars from various sports that have a global reach. A lot of NBA players fall into that category as well. And so, You know, I think that what that's demonstrated is that there's value in a person's name, in their likeness, in in what they, how they represent themselves. And there are people that are are looking to those folks as conduits of information, conduits of entertainment. So, uh, you know, I think that who knows where this will go yet on the collegiate level, but you you know we're we're doing a disservice to 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 athletes to to people who are college age if we're not teaching them how to to act online how to present themselves online and how to leverage the power that they have for their own gain whether that is professional or financial or both Galen can you talk a little bit about the kind of stipulations that you think need to be in place for student athletes as they're going to be engaging in really business ventures? Well, I'm taking a very open view of that. And I think a lot of what we're seeing 
with the debate about name, image, and likeness right now comes down to the heart of the debate about the concept of the student athlete. Uh, you know, there are, are restrictions that are placed on student athletes that aren't placed on regular students. And, and that goes across the board. And those are, those are NCAA imposed items. And the NCAA is, you know, the collection of schools that, that comprise it. So, you know, my perspective on it is, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to see, uh, you know, some kind of an explanation as to why the, why restrictions for athletes at the collegiate level should be more so than what the restrictions on an average college student would be because there really aren't any there. Now, where you get into a lot of murky legal uh, background, and, and certainly uh, Professor Dashmit would be able to better explain this for me, is where you get the branding of the individual institution, like an Indiana University, and, and how does that conflate or interact with the branding of the individual athlete? And that's that's a that's not really my particular area, but I think it's certainly a very interesting thing to think about as we move forward because a lot of these things could be mutually beneficial for the institution and for the athlete. And it's so it's okay. How do you how do you combine those two items, and does that lead to a larger reevaluation of the whole paradigm? Ken, do you want to react to that? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I think in the in the uh, O'Bannon case. Uh, what the NCAA argued basically was that, uh, so you're, you're absolutely right that, that there currently are not restrictions like these on ordinary, uh, ordinary students. And the, and the question is, is why have them on athletes? And in, in the new guidelines, uh, uh, the NCAA is talking about only having differences if they're really necessary for, for intercollegiate athletics. But I think what the NCAA would argue is the reason why athletes are different uh, and what, uh, uh, is that uh, for, at least for some of them, the magnitude of the money is going to affect it so that it affects their experience on campus. It affects whether they are not, uh, whether they are perceived as, as uh, amateur athletics, uh, amateur athletes. And then also differences in, in, in the ability of different schools to reward people for the likes, the use of their image uh, would uh, upset uh, kind of the, it would make the playing field for uh, intercollegiate athletics uh, imbalanced. And uh, as a result, they would argue that it's necessary to have at least some restrictions on this to, to preserve the amateur status, to preserve the athlete's uh, experience as a student on campus rather than, you know, basically a, a celebrity on campus, and also to, to, to kind of level the playing field. Now, they lost that, uh, that part of the Obama case, not completely. The judge didn't say that they couldn't have some restrictions. It just said that a complete prohibition on it was unreasonable. So... So we'll see uh, what they come up with. We're talking about uh, athletics today and the, the idea that student athletes would be able to use their name, image, and likeness and how they might be able to use name, image, and likeness to, be, to, to receive some compensation. We have uh, Jeremy Gray, Senior Associate Athletic Director for Strategic Communications and the Director of the Cuban Center at IU. And he is the co-chair of the IU Athletics Name, Image, and Likeness Task Force. Galen Clavio is director of the National Sports Journalism Center, and he is also on IU's Name, Image, and Likeness Task Force. And you just heard from Ken Dauschmidt, the Willard and Margaret Carr Professor of Labor and Employment Law at the Maurer School of Law. If you have questions or comments for us on this topic, send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us at noon edition. Well, I think one of the, the leading issues, and Jeremy, I'm sure you'll be able to relate to this, is, is you know, how do you allow a student athlete to use and be compensated for their name, image, and likeness to promote a commercial product or service? You can think about, I won't name any current student athletes, but let's just think about, you know, a year or two ago when Romeo Langford was here. If he comes in as a freshman, he's got this big name and all of a sudden he's got a deal to promote uh, one of the Chevrolet or the Chevrolet dealer in town. Um, you know, that that would seem to be something that he might be able to do under these rules. But it seems like a real slippery slope. So, you know, how, how will you know, how do you think that will play out? That's a, a, a terrific question. Um, and. I would say it, when when it's been portrayed uh, in the in the public discourse, there's often the the example of maybe the local car dealer will pay a 
you know, a Romeo Langford while he was a student here uh, to be in his or her television commercial promoting a product. Uh, but when we started putting together our task force and figuring out who would be a good fit on the task force, and by the way, Professor, Professor Dow Schmidt might end up being on our advisory board uh, with, his, with his expertise in labor law after this. Yeah, you, you might have gotten yourself drafted to help out here. Uh, but when we, we started thinking about the task force, we, we really believed that the space where a, a student athlete would be able to, to maximize their value would be in social media. Um, they're often called influencers, but the ability to, to promote things and their social media cha- channels with the with the wide reach that they would have, that that would maybe be their best opportunity and the most consistently utilized opportunity in the name image likeness space. We got to figure out what those rules are, make sure we are following those rules. But you could imagine a world, and I, and I, I want to get it out of just basketball and, and football, where I think a lot of schools are going to be focused on that. Um, at Indiana, uh, you know, Fred Glass coined the phrase 24 sports, one team. Well, I think we're taking that holistic approach when we're thinking about these issues. Think about Lily King when she was an undergraduate after capitalizing on winning her gold medals. What, what would she have been able to do as a social media influencer to, 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 to maybe, uh, you know, monetize herself in the name image likeness space? So I, I think social media is going to be a big uh, avenue uh, for, for uh, you know, student athletes to, uh, to, to potentially profit off their name, image, and likeness. That's a great point because IU has a lot of Olympians, and you know, those are individual athletes that, for at least a, a shining moment in time, are um, really well known and um, well uh, and written about all over the place. So, Sarah, we've gotten a couple questions, and Jeremy, this one might be best for you. But the question is, how will the NIL rules alter? Um, how, how will that affect athletes who rely on scholarships and will it possibly promote more equality? That too is a great question. One, I don't entirely know. One, it will have no impact on their, uh, on their scholarships. So the scholarship is a guarantee that we make as an institution. Um, each, each sport, um, this might not be widely known, has a specified number of scholarships um, and not all of them are round numbers or whole numbers even um, that, that are allowed to be given. I believe like baseball has 11.7 scholarships for 35 players. Kyle Schwarber, as great as he was, was not a full scholarship athlete when he played here. Uh, there are others that are full scholarship, uh, you know, sports. Uh, when you're thinking of, you know, women's basketball, men's basketball, uh, the 85 scholarships for football, it will have no impact on, on uh, their scholarship. As far as, you know, uh, equality is concerned. Um, thinking about the Kyle Schwarber example, um, obviously he was one of the five best athletes that we had in the entire decade. Um, my guess is with his social media reach, he would have, or and just his general presence, uh, he would have been able to monetize himself to, to, to match the amount of money that he was not getting in scholarship to, to be able to fund his college education and maybe even having uh, you know, more money left over. I'm thinking of someone like uh, Tyra Buss when she was an athlete here with her enormous possi- uh, popularity and her uh, prodigious following on social media. Um, I bet Tyra Buss would have made some some pretty good money under the rules, um, you know, in the name image likeness space. So I, 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 I think a lot of the athletes would have been able to, to get a different level of value uh, while they were here had those rules applied uh, you, you, back then. Galen, can you help me out as a, you know, a, one of the, our older listeners, older hosts, um, how is money made in this space? I mean, how much money are we talking about and how could a, a Tyra bus have made a lot of money in the social media space? Well, I, I mean, it's it, the numbers are all over the place. And I think a lot of it comes down to the, the audience level that you, you've got. Um, I mean, you know, the, the the example I always use, it's, it's an out there example, but it's like uh, you've some of people have heard of Ninja, uh, who's the, the esports uh, gamer that's that's monetized his brand to the point where he's he's making seven figures just off of his social media presence. Now, I I don't know that you would necessarily have 
uh, you know, college athletes have the, the kind of pull across, uh, you know, different areas that they would be able to do that. But, uh, but you can, whether, whether it is through monetization of an individual feed through interacting with a, a company that's, that's local or, or something beyond that, uh, or whether it is monetizing off of say commercials off of a YouTube channel. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it and, it can certainly vary quite a bit, largely based upon the audience and the overall draw that you have uh, with the people that that are trying to be reached. And I think one one of the, the interesting things about this is, you know, a lot of people don't realize, especially with with college athletes, that many of them have already built something of a social media presence before they get to college in the first place. I and mean, I've done some studies where we've looked at at high school football players who through the process of being nationally ranked and uh, you know through the process of of getting attention from various media outlets are carrying you know five six figures worth of of audience into college and then are able to build off of that and so um that that ends up changing the scale a little bit because if more and more people do that then you know you you almost have to get to a higher plateau to be able to to generate revenue at a high level off of what you're doing so we've had uh, a few questions come in and uh, some are about this topic. We, we did get one about um, the big 10 reversal. And I guess I do, I do want to just um, try to paraphrase it. And it basically talks about, you know, having the, uh, the, the student athletes being able to play football and the uh, basically the, they're calling it an entitlement of being able to be, tested, you know, routinely when not everybody can go out and get a virus test um, every day. And he suggests, uh, are we, the question is, are we willing to sacrifice the lives of those who are not of celebrity status in favor of entertainers? Um, And how does the university justify that? Um, You know, it's a tough question, but Jeremy, I want to give you an opportunity to to, uh, I actually have an opinion on that. Oh, yeah, Ken, go ahead. Well, I mean, we, we should let Jeremy too, but I thought about that because I've seen that argument made, and and uh, I don't think it's a very good argument because uh, um, these athletes are undertaking a little bit of special risk, and we can make it safer. They have to be in close contact with people every day uh, for their practices and their games, and we're, we can make it a little bit safer by this instant testing. The other students are spread out. They're at least six feet apart in classrooms. Not only that, uh, uh, anybody in the county can get a test anytime they want. I've been tested twice, uh, either at the university or, or through the county facilities. If, if a student wants to be tested, whether they have symptoms or not, they can get tested. It's just we're not requiring them to get tested every day. So I actually think uh, that's not a very good argument. Okay, I'm, Jeremy, I'm going to let you off the hook. I'm going to go to a, a different comment that we had and just, again, get your reaction to this. But someone said uh, he could have sold so many Tim Priller T-shirts when he was here. Uh, he could have made serious money in Bloomington for four years. So Tim Priller, very popular athlete, very hardly played. Athlete, but I think it touches on an, an important point. Um, one, we need to we need to understand the scale of this. Uh, to the idea that hundreds of athletes at each institution are going to be able to, in a meaningful way, you know, monetize this opportunity. I I don't think that that's accurate. It's going to be a relatively exclusive uh, group of athletes, but it's also going to come from places you don't necessarily expect. Um, Two of the top 10 athletes uh, in social media following in the NCAA are not in a revenue sport. Uh, there's a softball player, I believe, from Oregon who's got like a million followers. Uh, so it can come from unexpected places. Um, and two, social media is a skill. Uh, I mentioned Lily King, but we, I think we need to mention another gold medalist from the same Olympics who went to Indiana, and that's Cody Miller, who is making six figures a year vlogging. He makes his own videos. They're humorous in nature. It's not Steven Spielberg level production, but he makes his own videos. And he is sponsored as a professional swimmer by, you know, several people in the aquatic space. And he is making a very handsome living because of how effective he is on social media. So it might not be the the third best player on the men's basketball team who's able to effectively monetize it. But Tim Priller, because of his personality, 
um, might have been an athlete who could have successfully monetized it. So it might it might benefit athletes coming from unexpected places. So I I, I appreciate the the Tim Proler shout out, but realistically, he could have been one to have taken advantage of it. All right, we have about uh, 15 minutes to go on the program today. If you have questions or comments, please send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I want to get back to one of those uh, real fears. I know, you know, Jeremy, We I mentioned the Romeo Langford might be able to sell cars, that kind of thing. And I think that, you know, one of the one of the uh, fears has always been, it seems to me, with the NCAA, that a school could recruit kids and say, hey, if you come here, I can guarantee you, you know, X amount of money in whatever, in name, image, and likeness, and it would give some schools a recruiting advantage. So, you know, in these laws or, or in, the, in these regulations, how, how is that going to be avoided where some schools could take advantage of uh, a situation and perhaps run afoul of the spirit of, of the, these new new rules. I And I, I'll let uh, Galen take a swing at this too, because I know he has strong opinions on the subject, but I, w- I, w- I would say the, the following. Uh, no matter what the rules are, there are going to be institutions that don't follow them. Um, and I would say similar things have been proven to have taken place uh, with the existing set of rules. Um, I think it should be noted that our task force, there's only one unit of the athletic department that has more than one person on it. And that's our compliance department. We've got two people on the task force from compliance. It's very important that we, we follow the rules uh, at Indiana and it's our our number one stated goal as an athletic department. But I, I I can see people running afoul of the rules Uh, Two, the, the question about larger institutions having an inherent advantage in this space compared to, to smaller institutions with less reach. Well, that already occurs. Um, Alabama's got a larger weight room than Ball State. They just do. Um, and I think those those advantages are going to play out in a similar way to the way that they're already playing out. So the idea that, it, that uh, you know, Kent State gets to show the same things on a recruiting visit that Duke basketball does, I, I, I just don't think that that's reality. And I think, I think this will be reflective, you know, going forward too. Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. You stole some of my points there, Jeremy. Uh, the uh, but it, but it's because it's a very common misconception. I think that there's there's this mythical even playing field uh, in college athletics. There's just not. I mean, the Indiana University is. Uh, well, I think the athletic budget is in the what 125 million dollar range. Uh, Ohio State's is 210 million dollars. Uh, there is a significant competitive disadvantage there, and 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 Indiana is, I think, twenty fifth in the country in athletic budget in a in a country that's got you know about one hundred and thirty uh, FBS level athletic departments. So within this, I think there's always going to be questions of um, you know who is able to utilize this the best, and and as Jeremy said, you're going to have people violating whatever set of rules are put into place. We've seen that throughout the entire history of the NCAA, and it has often been used as an excuse to deny uh, student athletes the same rights as as other students on campus in terms of being able to make money not just off of their athletic endeavors, but uh, off of other pursuits that are outside of athletics that they could potentially monetize. And it's one of the things about this name, image, and likeness revolution that's taking place that I like the most, which is that it is giving athletes at the college level a chance to empower themselves a bit more and to, to, to start learning some of the lessons that we want them to learn. And even if they're not making huge amounts of money, the incentive of being able to build something and, based upon who you are and what you can do. Uh, and you know, I think that's an important lesson, an important thing that we should be teaching at the college level. Quick follow to that, Galen. Do you, do you think, though, that this has the potential to exacerbate the sort of inequities that exist between athletic departments? Um, no, I actually think that in some cases it, it'll act as a bit more of a leveler because what, you, what you're going to have is... It, certain institutions that are going to be more upfront with trying to make this area work. And, you know, the, the, the schools that I've seen that have announced task forces in this area, uh, you know, it's 
the TCUs and the Rutgers and, you know, smaller athletic departments in some cases or athletic departments we don't maybe don't have the same level of, um, of, 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 you know, build out that say a Texas or an Ohio state or a Michigan. I mean, there's an incentive for some of the athletic departments a little further down the budgetary pecking order to take advantage of this and to make sure that athletes know that they can come there and take advantage of it. So I actually think it could have a little more of a, a leveling out effect than anything else. We got a question from Twitter that I think maybe Kenneth, you can answer the best, but the comment was, um, this is complex. I'm third team all state. So I can go to IU and sit on the bench or attend a local university and collect endorsements as a hometown hero. Um, is that a correct interpretation of it? You think Kenneth? I, I think that's absolutely right. And that maybe makes the last point. It's a nice segue from uh, Galen's last point that in some ways this will be leveling because, because if you can be the hometown hero, that might be worth something. But if you sit on the bench at the big, if you're the little fish in the big pond, that might not be worth anything. So that's true. Um, there are other complications that are going to occur with this. I know the schools are already talking about, uh, you know, how whether they can use the school name or, or logo, and, and, and I think it's pretty clear they don't want them to use the school logo. Uh, also, what if the school has a contract with Nike, but the, but the student wants to make a contract with Adidas? What do you do in those situations? And then you've got certain standards the schools are going to have to put in. Do you, we probably don't want them endorsing, the student athletes endorsing absolutely any business. I know people have talked about prohibiting them from endorsing gambling, online gambling and things like that. You can imagine, you know, strip clubs or any, any kind of other thing. And then when we get to these influencers, I haven't heard this talked about much, and I don't understand the influencing as much as Galen. I'm, I'm an old man on this too, but one way to become popular on the internet is to be outrageous or notorious. And, and I, I mean, I think the schools will do a good job with this. I think that most of our student athletes will do a good job with this. But as a lawyer, I know uh, uh, eventually someone is going to misbehave. And then the, and the question is, is what kind of rules are we going to have to, to, to uh, prevent um, someone who acts outrageous online in order to get followers and it, it demeans uh, their school or something. I mean, that, this is, they're not only going to have to regulate who they can endorse, they're also going to have to regulate kind of conduct in seeking, seeking uh, revenue. Yeah, I think about, uh, you know, Dennis Rodman, if he was a, a new recruit for IU and how you would control his behavior. He, he was a pretty notorious, outrageous kind of guy. So, um, I mean, Dennis is, kind of, Dennis is kind of the outlier to the outliers, uh, to be fair. And look, I mean, I think I, I, these are good points that are being made, although I would point out that you already have, uh, you know, people constantly monitoring athlete social media. There's a, the, it, uh, Jeremy can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a, there's a whole process that, that uh, college athletes go through when they start where they're, they're workshopped on what to post and, and how to utilize social media. And I think that, uh, you know, that that process is just going to continue. But a lot of it comes down to educating students and, and college age kids in general about how they use social media. One of the things that I talk about a lot in class is, you know, most teenagers utilize social media as almost like a private communication channel. And then they also will consume certain types of entertainment that they enjoy. The, the transition most of them have to go through, and it happens right at this level, is transitioning from having it be something that you just do between your friends or between your peer groups to something that is public and that is visible to everybody. And, uh, you know, so that's, it's, it's all education and it's all, you know, being willing to allow some mistakes as long as you're able to correct them and, and show people what is acceptable and not acceptable behavior from a social perspective. And I think that that's part of this whole process that we're going through, not just with this committee, but just in general with social media. I, I want to piggyback off of that. Um, we were the second school in the country to partner with Open Doors Ready. Um, and it's a service that works with the NCAA. They also have arrangements with the NFL, NBA, MLB, Players Association, the PGA Tour, the ATP for tennis. Um, they're a real leader in this space and they're going to provide each student athlete with an in-depth analysis of their social media health 
featuring personalized insights, valuation of their social media name, image, and likeness. There's going to be all sorts of education going on from benchmarks to tools and personal planning. Student athletes will receive education emphasizing the opportunity and next steps in the process of maximizing their value. That's going to be a huge component of the task force um, is to help open doors, help our athletes, you know, be be operating with best practices on social media. And yes, some of that I read directly off of our press release there. Well, I and, and I think that, that, that brings up the point. This is this is how the best schools are gonna respond and that, that IU is gonna help our student athletes not only make sure that they follow the rules, but also that they get the full benefits of this, right? And that that's the way we will use it for recruiting, which is which is within the rules. Uh, and that's that will be the best practices. So, Kenneth, can you address how the NCAA, NCAA has been able to control whether students entered into third-party endorsements all this time? Yes. Uh, I mean, if you want to, you can you can ignore NCAA rules if you don't want to play NCAA sports. But because they're a sports league, they get to make certain uniform rules. And, and uh, actually, Oklahoma, the NCAA, uh, there was a Supreme Court case a long time that established that uh, uh, and uh, it's co college sports, league sports is a unique product that can only be made with certain unifying rules. And they can, they are an exception to the antitrust laws to the extent that those restrictions are reasonable. Obvious restrictions would be every football field has to be 100 yards, you have to have a lineman and a judge and a referee, whatever, all the, all the standard rules, those are easy to say. The NCAA can require everybody who plays NCAA football to follow these same rules. What gets harder then though is when they start uh, uh, regulating things like what kind of scholarship can you get, what kind of uh, uh, compensation for food or, or housing or whatever. Uh, um, when they start making rules like that, now the question is, is that re really a reasonable restriction? Is that a necessary restriction in order to produce this league sports play? And uh, courts, uh, as I said, uh, uh, with the O'Bannon case at least, the judge thought that they did not need to completely prohibit payment for, for um for the use of their image. Yeah, um, and, and a question from Twitter. I think this is probably best for Jeff. Um, will athletes be made Twitter official and will the university have control over that? Be Jeremy, is that who you were directing that to? I'm thinking of verified yeah. profiles is what they're saying, like uh, the blue check marks. Um, we already work to get uh, certain athletes the verified blue check mark. Uh, by the way, a lot of them ask for it. Um, really, that is that is more up to uh, Twitter, Instagram, the platforms themselves on uh, approving them as a verified account. Um, they it's actually not as easy as it used to be um, to do to, to do that. But I think that would be separate from name, image, and likeness. That's something that's been going on here for years. Uh, you know, in fairness, it's so that there are not fake accounts or parody accounts made on their behalf as they become, you know, notable public figures. It's to protect the athlete as much as it is to make them look awesome on a social media platform to be able to monetize it. So in our last few minutes, Jeremy, can you talk about uh, what's next for the committee? What, what how you're going to progress? What kind of timeline you're on? Yeah, so we actually had our first meeting last week, and the first meeting we actually had compliance just go over all of the rules as they stand now and where the NCAA stands on these issues. Uh, the next meeting, which will be next week, um, um, we will have our, our federal relations staff with the university tell us about the national, uh, you know, legislation, uh, different th bills that are going through Congress or being, you know, brought to committee in Congress. Um, I think right now it's educating the task force and then we'll get into the brainstorming fun part of it later on as we go into the fall and get ready for for uh, January. But right now we're in uh, we're in NIL graduate school trying to learn all we can about the rules, you know, the policies um, and the different places that it can take us. Will there be student involvement, the student athletes themselves? You know, this was a this was a hole in the uh, co-chair's plan in the first meeting. I think within three minutes, Galen, somebody asked if we can get a student athlete involved. So, yep. so, so we're in the process of finding some, uh, you know, interested student athletes to be involved with the, 
in, in advising the task force. So yes, there will be student athlete involvement. All right, and you mentioned FBS before, which is the, the football bowl series. Now there's division one and division two and division three. Are the rules gonna be the same for the three divisions in the NCAA? Um, you know, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. I really haven't paid attention to how will impact anybody who's not in the FBS. So I, that I don't know. I, I would imagine it would be the same. Okay, so last question, uh, you know, and all three of you can have a shot at answering it. I mean, where do you hope that this is in, um, let's say, a year from now? We're through COVID, everybody's playing again. You know, what do you hope the student athletes have the ability to do at that point? And uh, Ken, can we start with you? Well, I guess I'm, I, 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 uh, I don't think this is a bad idea. I think it is fraught with potential problems uh, like being abused in recruiting or that, it, or that students somehow being taken advantage of in this. But I'm hoping that they will be able to receive reasonable payments for uh, reasonable uh, uh, use of their image. Uh, uh, and um, given how much money there is now in intercollegiate athletics, at least, at least men's football and men's basketball, uh, that seems a fair, a, a fair thing to do. All right, Galen. My hope on this is that we have a robust, multi-leveled process that we're using here at Indiana University that becomes the model for how the rest of colleges and, and universities engaged in athletics handle this, where we're providing uh, training and development assistance to students uh, who are in athletics so they can help develop their social media uh, profiles. Because some, as Jeremy mentioned, are are very good and very much natural in this space and others are perhaps not particularly interested in it or suited for it and that's fine. Uh, and then I hope that we have a system that allows uh, you know, our, our athletes to essentially try to leverage this as best they can, both for what they're doing right now and what they plan to do professionally, uh, whether that's in athletics or not. Jeremy, we have got about 10 seconds. I co-sign what the other two said. I, I really hope it's a great opportunity for, for, our, for our student athletes in the same way uh, that, that Olympians of the last generation have been able to enjoy uh, you know, similar benefits. All right, thank you very much, Jeremy Gray, uh, Galen Clavio, and Ken Dow-Schmidt. For producers Bento Boutier and John Bailey, for engineers Matt Stonecipher and Mike Pashkash, for co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, this September hosting the virtual 21st running of Hoosiers Outrun Cancer, a 5K run-slash-walk supporting those in the community facing a cancer diagnosis. Registration and more at HoosiersOutRunCancer.org.